All right. You want to read the thing? Here we go. Every stadium in the United Kingdom built to hold more than 10,000 fans must hold what's called a grounds safety certificate. Issued by local authorities, the certificate indicates compliance with an extensive array of design standards drawn from The Green Guide, a very thick book with a green cover titled Guide to Safety at Sports Grounds. The Green Guide specifies every last inch of a grounds safety certified stadium, from seats to handrails to exits to turnstiles. It describes the maximum height of steps and the minimum width of seats, among a thousand other details, and is particularly concerned with crowd circulation, fire suppression, and communications. There's a whole chapter on medical and first aid provisions that must be in place before every game, and another on safety requirements for ingress, egress, concourses, and vomitories. Architectural standards aren't new, and thick books of regulations aren't either. But the Green Guide has a different feel to it, with large chunks devoted not just to management responsibilities on staffing and signage, but data developed from decades of research and observation on crowd dynamics and spectator safety. Today, the Green Guide is used to build and design stadiums and grounds all over the world, and the United Kingdom boasts some of the safest sports venues ever built. But that's because it used to have some of the worst. In fact, the 1971 inquiry that led to the writing of the Green Guide sprang from one of the deadliest crush disasters of the 20th century. On this episode of Relative Disasters, the story of the Ibrox Stadium Disasters. Welcome to Relative Disasters, the show where my brother and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events and their context, implications, and any related sidebars that we feel like discussing. I'm Ella, your host for this episode. And I'm her brother Greg, co-host for this episode. This is a listener suggestion. Uh, Nathan suggested this way back in July of last year. Nathan, <laughs> if you're still listening, thank you. I'm sorry it took so long to get to this incredibly fascinating disaster. So this account draws on... An article called Singing and Dancing to Their Deaths, Football's Forgotten Tragedy. That's by John Hodgman for The Guardian. Okay. And a book called The Temple of Dreams, The Changing Face of Ibrox. That's by Ian Duff. And a few other articles, which we will link in our show notes. Okay. Do you know anything about the Scottish architect Archibald Leach? Um, I now know that he exists. He lived and worked in Glasgow, Scotland. Okay. Uh, Archibald Leach was a Rangers fan. So when the Rangers decided they needed a bigger stadium, they, well, okay, so they didn't hire him. He actually did this for free. He what? Yeah. <laughs> he designed so the a thing. stadium for free? <laughs> Leach okay. was not known for Okay, so Leach was later known for building stadiums. He built something like 20 all across the United Kingdom. Okay, okay. In 30 years or something. Just but a at massive... this point, he was just known yeah. for building factories. He built factories. Um, in Glasgow, he built a tea factory and a sugar factory. But he loved football. So when the Rangers came knocking, he was like, absolutely, I will build this for you. Okay. So the 1899 design that he came up with, it called for a big pitch 
and enough seating for the club to host international and champion matches. Okay. As I mentioned, Leach designed it for free, which may have been because he was a fan, or it may have been so that he could secure the project and move his career from factories into stadiums. I mean, hey, which why not both? he became very successful at. Well, cool. okay, so there are big differences between designing a building <laughs> and designing a stadium, as yeah. you will learn. Yeah. Leach designed the park to have grandstand seating, which is wooden bench seating rising up in tiers. Okay. And this is supported by these kind of wood and steel girders that are sunk into a concrete footing. Okay. Um, and the structure looks kind of like what you see under wooden roller coasters. So those big X's that are kind of bolted together with metal plates. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Great for roller coasters, which hold a few people you know, traveling. A couple fast. dozen people yeah. at the most. Not great for a couple thousand people on bleachers, but okay. Not great. We'll find out why. Oh. So Leach okay. is designed for the West Tribute Stand, which is this huge section of seating at Ibrox. It was supposed to accommodate thirty five thousand people, just to give you an idea of Whoa. how many people were turning up to these yeah. games or how yeah, many yeah. people the Rangers anticipated would turn up. Okay. But Leach's design included standing room, and this is really common in sports ground, in sports sure. grounds from this time. So you would have some seats, and the seats would have like a shade or a roof over the top. Sure. And then you would have open air standing room. Okay. And because the design included that standing room, crowds could become much larger than Leach had anticipated in his design, yeah. and that would lead to crowding. Yeah. Quick sidebar for crowds. Yes. Uh, crowds can become dangerous and even deadly when they become dense. Yeah. And it's not a problem with the size of the crowd necessarily, but the density. So how many people right. are packed how closely together. Are we about to talk about what crushing in crowds is? Yeah. So the average person needs a space of 12 by 24 inches to move freely. Right. And a crowd of any size is safe as long as every person has this room around them. Right. Sure. But when the crowd is moving and when that 12 by 24 kind of elbow room personal space, when that shrinks to 8 by 12 or even smaller, yeah, the crowd begins to act like a fluid. And yeah. you see the same kind of fluid dynamics as you would in running water. So the pressure increases unpredictably and very quickly. If you have a crowd with a density of 6 to 7 people every square meter... Those people can't necessarily move under their own power. Right. So their arms are pinned to their sides. Their feet probably aren't touching the ground. They're being lifted up and swept along with the crowd. Yeah. If the pressure increases and you're adding another two or three people to that square meter, then your bones are at risk. Your lungs can't expand enough for you to breathe, which yep. means you can't shout for help. Yep. And if you happen to fall down, you're risking severe injuries from trampling. Yeah. Yeah, I, I hate all of this. Uh, personal sidebar, I was involved in a crush at a stadium once, and uh, it was very scary. Um, you know, you sort of become aware that you are being moved not under your own power, that it's getting really, really hard to breathe, and that you're not sure if this is going to... Like there's just nothing you can do in the moment. You can't, you can't break out of it. You can't swim against it. You're just you're going to be carried out. Unfortunately, I was close enough to the doors where, you know, I I was just carried out. And then after you got out the doors, everything was, you know, there was free space and people could move again. But you know, it was Did, probably, were your feet on the ground? Do you remember? My feet, I 
I'm pretty sure my feet were on the ground, yeah. But mm-hmm. I had no real... It was like almost this feeling of constantly tripping where I wasn't like... I wasn't... Um, even though my feet could touch the ground, I mm-hmm. could not direct them to move in any other way than where the crush was taking us. That um, sounds horrifying. It was it was really, really scary in the moment. Yeah, absolutely. I don't, I mean, not cool. Uh, crushes are bad and stadiums and buildings should be designed to avoid that. So the other thing about crowding is that it also comes with a weight problem. Yeah. So a dense crowd can become very heavy very quickly. And when you add in the kind of dynamics that you see at a game where people rise up together to cheer yeah. or start stamping and clapping together, it places tremendous strain on whatever they're standing on. Yeah. So Leach's design was dangerous for a number of reasons, but one of the big ones is that he hadn't fully accounted for the weight of an excited, active crowd. Okay. Which... I don't know if you've ever been to a football game in the United <laughs> Kingdom. <laughs> they tend to be both excited. And yeah, active. they're a little boisterous. Yeah. Uh, so Leach himself was concerned when the stadium opened and he saw how the stands looked when they were half full. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, that's, yeah. If the stadium's half full and you're worried about it, that's a problem. If you're the architect yeah. and you're worried about it, architects yeah. tend not to be worried I built it. It's fine. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. That is how architects do it. Uh, That is not what Leach does in 1901 and the early months of 1902. He gets concerned. And as Scotland rose in that year's championship, which the Rangers had promised to host, he asked for a safety inspection from the local authorities. Uh, And that is, again, a big deal for an architect to say, hey, listen, this thing I designed and built might not actually be safe would you mind coming and taking a look okay he had to have been really concerned at that point yeah absolutely uh the city surveyor came and looked at the structure and was like nope you're good um okay i've seen pictures of this stadium prior to 1902 and it looks it looks sturdy if you're looking at it from the grounds you're just seeing like a sea of what looks like bleacher seats Sure. And if you're looking at it from the side and you're kind of looking at the structure that's supporting these these like standing platforms and seats. Sure. It doesn't look bad. Okay. But there's no way for me to envision how big and heavy the crowd must have been as they were like packing in to watch a game. Right. So the game on April 5th, 1902, was the championship match between England and Scotland, which, as you can imagine, was a created deal. strong feelings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> The crowd was mostly Scottish spectators, and the West Tribute stand was packed. It was the fullest it had ever been. Okay. Okay. There are an estimated 70,000 people at this Jeez. game in this stadium, and 40,000 of those are in the West Tribute stand. Uh, I hate where this is going. Okay. <clears throat> The game was already a nail-biter by the first half, and people were pushing to get into the higher seats to get a better view of the game as the first half got exciting. Mm-hmm. Okay. At four o'clock, so half an hour into the game, okay. the wooden grandstand seating failed at the top of the stand. The planking split open, and 17 of the joints holding the seats to the supports failed, sending between two and 300 people falling into the girders below. Oh, my God. A spectator named Ernest Tate described the collapse in a later inquest. Quote, 
The floor gave no warning before it gave way. There was a sudden crack below us. I had time to look down and see the joists split up, and then we fell among them through the gap. End quote. Yeah. Which sounds just unimaginably horrible. Incredibly, officials kept the game going after the collapse. What? Yep. This will show you how huge Ibrox is. Many of the other spectators, even those who were in the West Tribute stand, didn't realize it had happened. Oh my god. Yeah. Okay. And the officials didn't want to start a panic or cause a stampede out of the stands because remember, this is an enormous 70,000 person crowd. Yeah. Okay. Uh, So they play the full game. Yeah. Uh... Two people died at the scene and an additional 23 people passed away from their injuries in the hospital over the next few days. So with 25 fatalities, this was the deadliest sports stadium accident in the UK ever at this time. And it remained the worst accident for over 40 years. So how did this collapse happen? Um, How didn't it happen, I think, would be a much... If if somehow you had had 40,000 people packed into this thing and it didn't give way, that would have been the story. Yeah, so it's not structurally sound. Yeah! Also, there had been heavy rain the night before, which waterlogged the seat planking Uh, and increased the weight on those 17 joints. Yep, yep. The wood of the planking was supposed to have been red pine, and it turned out in the inquiry that the timber merchant had swapped it out for cheaper and weaker yellow pine. Okay. Uh, The girders that are supporting the seats, although they passed a safety inspection, they were not designed to carry so much live weight. Sure. And the movement of the crowd stressed it further. Yeah. Finally, and to his credit, Leach recognized this stadium seating for a huge crowd, and Ibrox saw crowds of over 100,000 throughout the 20th century, so much larger crowds than were there that day. Yeah. Uh, Seating for that many people needs solid support. Right. And Leach decided that stadium seats should never, ever be resting on on Uh, built supports. Yeah. They need a solid base of either rammed earth or concrete. And he designed his next 20 stadiums because this did not ruin his career. Okay. uh, With that kind of support. Good. The government followed suit. They banned wood framework stadium seating for crowds larger than 5,000. Okay. So if you have a tiny, tiny grounds, you can get away with this kind of bleacher seating. Sure. If you don't, you got to do it safely. Okay. So following the 1902 collapse disaster, the Rangers knew they had to fix their stadium, which they still hadn't finished paying for. Ah. So they're in a real mess. And they financed the reconstruction by trading off their best players, which was a big gamble. Uh. Nobody is going to come or 100,000 people are not going to come to see terrible football players play. But they managed the reconstruction. They even hired Leach to do the redesign. Okay. And the new seating at Ibrox was completed in 1905, and it was now supported by an enormous embankment of rammed earth, which the rangers had bought from a railway construction project down the road. Okie doke. And it had room for even more spectators, which made it one of the largest stadiums in the world. Did it still have the standing room seating or, or standing room attendance? Yeah. Or, okay. So. Yep. So it had standing room and seated room, and it had open air and shaded okay. areas. Okay. And although they were struggling, the Rangers saw a lot of support from their fans who would go see matches in crowds of 30 to 60,000 people for the big ones. Yeah. The club recovered and they went on to get their league championship back by 1911. 
and they expanded their seating again in the 1930s to accommodate crowds of 100,000, although you could squeeze more in if you really wanted to. One game against the Celtics in 1939 drew 118,000 fans. Jeez. Yeah. Okay. Now, though the redesigned Ibrox was safer in terms of crowd weight, it still wasn't safe. So crowd control was a huge problem. Okay. Yep. Um, and from the 1940s on, so was hooliganism. Sure. And this was especially problematic at the Rangers versus Celtics games because the Celtics were the other Glaswegian football club and they had been bitter rivals since the 1870s, yeah. as we mentioned. Yeah. They're actually known as the Old Firm. Yes. And Old so Firm when they play games, games it's the Old bananas. Firm getting together. Um, and those games bring a lot of people, a lot of alcohol, a lot yep. of yelling, a lot of fist fights. No, there's, there's a lot of violence kind of built into a lot of that yeah uh so crowds at those games could become very volatile very quickly adding to the crowd problem were the exits okay a stadium this big has to have as we mentioned in the intro yeah it has to have a lot of attention paid to the ingress the egress the concourses and the vomitoria which are the big hallways that are intended to move lots of people in and out in a speedy way So Ibrox has smaller exits around the stadium, but the biggest and the most used are two massive sets of wooden staircases that went up and over the embankment. So the seating is on the inside, and you would walk up the aisles, and then you would be at the top of this little crest, and then you would take one of these big staircases down to get to the street. Okay. One of these stairways, Stairway 13, would see about 25,000 people using it during the average old firm match. Stairway 13 was a wide stair, but the steps were steep because the back of the embankment is very steep. Right. Um, so the designers had used a wooden central barrier to create two lanes running down the stairs, and that's to help stop people from falling and to slow down and kind of thin out the crowd a little bit. Sure. Okay. Those stairs are hemmed in by a head-height wooden fence with a ditch just beyond, and then there's kind of a grassy embankment on either side. Okay. So at the foot of the hill is a subway station. And the problem is that with the steep steps, the narrow lanes on the stairs, and the visibility from the top of the steps, it's hard to gauge how thick the crowd is on the descending side and how fast it's moving. So people would get to the top and realize a few steps down that the crowd is a complete bottleneck. But now it's too late. They can't back up. They can't turn back, yeah. And they can't warn anyone behind them. Because a lot of times you get into this crush right away and you can't even turn around. Yeah. Spectators describe the sensation of being picked up their f- off their feet and swept down the stairs by the crowd, and it's not unusual for people to arrive at the street with broken bones and crushed ribs and bruises. Jeez. This is an extremely dangerous exit. But the rangers and the spectators are just remarkably kind of blasé about it. Sure. You know, it's kind of like a rite of passage of going to a game. You get stuck in this crush and kind of swept down the hill and deposited at your subway station with maybe a bruise uh, or a lost shoe or something. Yeah, I don't, I don't like any of this. It, it reminds me a little bit of the uh, the action park mentality, where it's like it was sort of like a rite of passage for the kids in Jersey at the time. Yeah, that's it's what like, it sounds like. Where'd you get? Where'd you get that? You know, where are you in a cast now? Oh, action park. So you come out what? Oh, did you get that at the old firm? Yeah. I will I say, like if you've been to a game, your team won or lost. Yeah. You had a few drinks. You're with your buddies. You're not really concerned with crowd dynamics and crowd no. safety. You're just like you're ready to go home. Or yeah. 
So this is how it goes until September of 1961. And that's when the Rangers and the Celtics tied a game two to two. And when the game ended, it was kind of the usual problem on stairway 13 as the crowd left the stadium. But this time, in an especially packed crowd, two boys in the middle of the crowd tripped and fell. And the bottleneck turned fatal in a matter of minutes as people next to the boys stopped to try and help them up. Oh, God. So the pressure of the crowd actually broke the wooden fencing open. Okay. And then the luckiest people caught in this crush fell down off the stairs on one side into the ditch. And the unlucky were caught and trampled by the people behind them who were being swept down the stairs by the pressure of the crowd. Scottish journalist John Hodgman, who was then 14 years old, was caught up in the crush, and here is how he described it. Quote, One minute we were moving down, edging and lurching towards the third flight of stairs. The next we were standing still. I wasn't standing at all. My feet were at least six inches off the ground. I felt the terrifying sensation of being crushed, like a slow, firm punch in the solar plexus. I'd lost my left shoe. We stopped again. Fantastic pressure enveloped me, and I struggled for breath. I panicked. It was like being underwater too long. My lungs were empty and gasping to get some air in. I began wiggling, trying to force myself upwards and out on top of the crowd, but my elbows were pressed hard against my ribs. I tasted blood, and my chest felt as though it was splintering. End quote. Two people died, and another 30 have serious injuries and are taken to the hospital, including John Hodgman, who survived. Yes. The only reason more people didn't die was because of the broken fence, which allowed some of the crowd to spill out of the stairway onto the embankment and relieve the pressure of the worst of the crush. Okay. This accident was serious enough to get the attention of the Scottish Football Association, who mandated that all football clubs needed to update their exits for better crowd control. Sure. So for the Rangers, yeah, it's reasonable, right? Yeah, it seems like a smart thing to be doing anyway. For the Rangers and for Ibrox, this meant that they replaced the wooden steps with concrete and put in iron handrails to create seven lanes and lots of handholds. Okay. The fencing, which had been wood, was replaced by a reinforced wood and steel fence and was also made a little taller. That seems like that's just going to hem people in more, though. It's a lot of work and it's very expensive. But the upshot is that it's even less safe when they get done. Uh So basically, all they did was make the existing steps and its enclosures stronger. Yeah. So when the safety renovation was over, the steps at Stairway 13 were still the same width. They were still very steep on the descending side. And of course, they were still seeing those huge, volatile crowds after every championship and old firm game. Only now, instead of wood, they're made out of steel and concrete. Mm -hmm. Like, Why did anyone think that was going to solve the issue? And they still have that problem at the top, remember? Where you have people like standing at the top of the stairs to catch the last few minutes, and then they're going to run down the stairs to catch the subway. But once you get down the stairs, you can't tell how fast the crowd is going or what's going on on the stairs. Or warn people behind you or turn around and go back. Yeah, it's just still a giant mess. All they did was increase the pressure. I can see where they were going with the extra handrails, right? Because you don't have people falling if they have something to grab. Uh But that does very little to kind of control the crowd the way they're thinking. So throughout the 1960s, international matches and old firm matches continue to be enormous draws with crowds of over 60,000 for championship matches. Nice. In 1969, Stairway 13 saw another serious accident where a person in the middle of the crowd lost their footing and went down in the bottleneck in the middle of the stairs. Uh. One of the new steel handrails broke 
under the pressure of the crowd. Oh, my God. That is how bad it was. And 24 (sighs) people were injured. No fatalities. Okay, I'm glad nobody died. But if you have enough crowd pressure where a steel rail is being (laughs) broken. God, it's nightmare material. Yeah. The traditional New Year's match between the Rangers and the Celtics took place January 2nd, 1971. It had been a freezing cold day and misty. 80,000 okay. people went to Ibrox to watch. And it was a frustrating game for the Rangers fans because they didn't manage to score until the very last minute, until minute 89 of the game. And then the Celtics followed with a goal of their own. Ah, yeah. that hurts. And the, well, the game ended in a draw, which is... Uh, okay. Still, I, in the but... documentary that I watched... Um, Sports historians are saying everybody loves a draw because it feels like both teams win. I don't know if that's completely true. Um, it's absolutely true in in soccer. I I'm never I'm never unsatisfied with a draw. You'd rather get a win, but it's a lot better than a loss. And sure. when the scoring is so low as it is in association football, that uh, you know it and so late in the game. That's what's really that that's what'll break you. I mean, something coming in in the 89th minute and you're like, "Yes." And then something coming in in the 90th and you're right like, after. "No." Yeah. yeah, there was literally like 30 seconds between these. Not two cool, guys. A real roller coaster. Ah. Uh, okay. So by the end of the game, the Rangers fans were streaming down stairway 13. John Hodgman, who had been injured in the 1961 crush, no. Is now 10 years older and exiting on stairway 13 when he recognized that the top of at the top of the stairs that the crowd below him was packed in too tightly to move okay quote i was much more aware of my surroundings than others in the tumultuous frenzy of swaying men and i quickly pulled my arms up to shoulder height even so my top half was jammed so tightly on all sides that one of my feet was dragging and scraping along the ground Memories of September 1961 welled up sickeningly, and I said out loud, I've got to get out of here. Only a few yards of the high black fence on my left remained before it turned down the side of stairway 13. My fingers closed between two struts. I jammed my right hand between another two and clung on as if my life depended on it. It did. End quote. So this poor guy standing at the top of the stairs knows what's going on, probably better than anyone else. And sees it coming and still can't do anything. Can't do anything to stop it and barely manages to save himself. Yeah. Okay. So in the middle of the stairs, halfway down, someone had fallen and the rest of the crowd had begun to pile up to those dangerous densities that we talked about before. Remember, the people in the middle can't move and their feet might not be touching the ground. If they hadn't raised their arms like John Hodgman did, their arms were pinned to their side. Yep. Another witness, David Sterling, described it from the middle of the crush. So he's right in the middle of Staircase 13 when this happens. Okay. Quote, we were all trying to hold back. You could see the big traps were trying to hold everyone back. There were kids all around us. The pressure of the crowd was just the usual coming out of a match. Everybody squeezes up. But as we were all pressing down, you could feel yourself getting lifted off your feet by the people in front. Everyone was trying to hold back to ease the people in front out the road. I had my arms around three young lads trying to protect them. The next minute, the pressure got so great that I felt as if I was going myself. I happened to get this left arm up and I got a breath of air. 
The next minute there was a bang and the banister burst and everyone flew forward. We were getting pressed together and your body was being lifted at an angle from the pressure behind and the people in front were all falling. When the banister went, I seemed to fly through the air and land on top of all the bodies. I started crawling and other bodies came on top of me and they seemed to bridge me. I was at the bottom, lying half on top of others, and there were three young lads at my side. About 30 or 40 minutes after that, I got free. It took so long because there were people in front of me and people in the back of me to be cleared away first. And people on top of me. End quote. So there are police and first aid emergency responders at the foot of the stairs almost immediately. Yeah. And they can see right away that there's no use trying to get up the stairs. The best they can do is pull people out of the pile from the bottom, and they are pulling out people who are unconscious or not yep. breathing, as yep. well as some who are already dead. So the pressure of the crowd caused the steel handrails to warp and bend, mm-hmm. and some broke, which, like David Sterling described, added to the pressure and the movement of the crush. The reinforced fencing on either side didn't break and added to the pressure inside the stairway. Mm-hmm. Remember in the 1961 accident... Yeah, it did break. It broke and, and people, so people could fall out and right, relieve and some really of the pressure. Right, pressure in the middle of the staircase. But that did not, not happen with nope. this brand new reinforced wooden steel fencing. Yep. By the end of the night, 66 people are dead. 145 people are badly injured and rushed to five different hospitals across the city because there's no one hospital in Glasgow that's big enough to that take can handle all injured. Them. Yeah. Uh, To give you an idea of how many of those injuries were crushing asphyxiation injuries, first responders go through 3,200 oxygen tanks just between the site of the accident and the time they drop the injured off at the hospital. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. Most of the victims die of asphyxiation and crush injuries caused by the crowd and the enclosure. Yep. So Rangers manager Willie Waddell speaks to the press and the players the next day. He does not address the 1961 accident or the safety of the stairway, Okay. but he does send his players in groups to every single funeral and around to the hospitals to visit the injured. It takes two weeks for the team to get back together, and they resume their playing schedule at Ibrox in front of a 28,000-person crowd, and nobody is surprised when the bulk of the crowd exits well before the end of the game. Yeah. There is an inquiry. A fatal accident inquiry. Guess what they find? Uh, They find that Stairway 13 was never going to be safe in the way that they had reconstructed it to be safer. Yep. Yeah. They blame the accident on the design of the stairway and not on the owners of Ibrox, the Rangers football club. Okay. However, in a civil suit filed in 1971, the sheriff, James Irvine Smith, found the rangers responsible by negligence for the death of one of the victims i mean and this kind of matches up with public opinion yeah like it's such a hair split to say the stairway is what caused this fatal accident but the owners of the stairway are not responsible right exactly i can see why people were very angry with that i would be angry yeah so here's a quote of the sheriff's statement of what he said at the end of the case Um, And it's a quote from The Changing Face of Ibrox, the book I mentioned earlier. Okay. Quote, the sheriff said little had been done to improve safety on the staircases after the previous incidents and found that the club appeared to have proceeded with the view that, quote, if the problem was ignored long enough, it would eventually disappear, end quote. 
Yeah, I mean, that's pretty classic for a lot of these kind of incidents. Yeah, really says it all. Yeah. So the end result of this inquiry was the appointment of Lord Wheatley to carry out a safety review of all football grounds in the United Kingdom. Lord Wheatley is a judge. Uh, He doesn't seem to have had any particular affiliation with football or sports safety. Um, Honestly, that's probably a very thorough job. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Why not? Right? Like, approach it as a completely fresh thing. You don't have any loyalties to any sports teams, nothing. You just. Go in there and investigate. That seems yeah. like a good thing to do. Um, so in 1975, it takes him, I think, three and a half years to sure. put together all the things he finds out. But in 1975, he publishes his findings in a report called Safety of Sports Grounds, okay. which listed compliance specifications a stadium must meet in order to be certified to hold football matches. Okay. And if stadiums do not meet these requirements, they're facing heavy fines and the threat of being shut down. Sure. So this is finally like a piece of legislation that says you must have a safe stadium. If you're going to be hosting crowds of 100,000 people, here's what you need your stadium to look like. So after the accident at Ibrox, Stairway 13 is closed for months before studies, including an aerial film made of crowd movements as the game finishes. Ooh, fancy. I like it. Okay. In the summer of 1971, all the stairways are redesigned with seven-foot-tall concrete barrier walls separating the descending stairs from the seats at the top of the stadium. Okay. And in effect, this narrows and blocks the view of the field, and it means that people are trickling over the brow of the embankment. They're not pouring down like they were before. And they're also not stopping to look back. Exactly. Because you can't see. You can't even really hear once you're past this wall. Okay. This has the effect of slowing traffic into the downstairs and it drastically improves safety and density on the stairs. Good. A larger renovation takes place in the 1970s and the change from standing to seating in the larger covered stands. So... What they did is they extended the roofing so it so it covers all four sides. Gotcha. Okay. And they got rid of the standing room. So you had to sit down. Okay. You're going to be there. Sure. And that actually had a huge improvement on hooliganism. Sure. Once hooligans sit down, <laughs> they are less likely to engage to hooliganize. in hooligan behavior. Yeah. Ah. It, which blew my mind. I, I had always assumed that, that if you were bound on throwing beer bottles and yelling slurs at people you could do it just as easily from a seated position but it turns out that's not true huh who knew so areas at the foot of the stairway were cleared out to improve traffic flow and turnstiles were moved and widened okay and then they went they went all the way and added a social club a police office and a special room where lost children could be held until their parents came to collect them i like it okay so they're really they're really developing it from what it used to be into more of a modern kind of right sports arena sure so what we think of when we think of a stadium sure uh another safety change is a strict limit on crowd size lord wheatley's report says that ibrox can only safely hold sixty-five thousand people so that's the maximum number of tickets that can be sold to a game or an event from okay. january 1971 on okay After a larger renovation in the late 1970s, another drop in seats brings the maximum crowd size down again to a maximum of 50,800. And of course, this goes a long way towards improving crowd density and crowd safety. Yeah. 
So just having fewer people in there makes a massive change. Big difference between 50, 58,000 and 116,000. Yeah, if you think of if you think of that square meter, yeah. And you know, the difference between having twice as many people in the square meter, yep, or half as many people, you know, it's it's a huge huge factor in safety. Yeah. With the memory of the 1971 accident and because their safety certification is on the line, the rangers stick to this limit religiously. Good. So even with smaller crowds, the rangers are still one of the best teams in the UK and their fans remain passionate supporters. Um, even as Glasgow changes a lot in yeah. the 1980s and 90s. So today, Ibrox Stadium is considered one of the safest stadiums in the world, and it hosts millions of spectators each year. And that is the story of the Ibrox disasters. Well, that was fascinating and horrible and so completely avoidable, and yet... This was this was an absolutely fascinating story to research, and uh, thank you to Nathan again. I would not have found this story without yeah. someone pointing me in the right direction, and it was absolutely fascinating to to learn more about the yeah. history of Ibrox. So thank you, Nathan, and uh, that wraps us up for today. I think. All right. Well, thank you again for spending some time with us, and here on Relative Disasters. Uh, we do fact-check our stories in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible. If you'd like to read more about our sources, a more complete bibliography is available in our show notes. If we got anything wrong, please let us know. You can do that by emailing us at relative.disasters at gmail.com, or if you'd like to share some insights we missed, or just shame us publicly. And you know you do. Why not use our Instagram at relative.disasters? And a special thank you to our patrons who support us at Relative Disasters Podcast on Patreon. This week's episode was brought to you by Shira. Shira! And Sarah. Sarah! Who combined for a 9.52 ERA in the 1886 World Series. Awesome. Awesome job, guys. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Room for improvement, but, you hey, know. we like to see the effort. Yeah. We are the podcast that is all about effort. <laughs> over results if you learn from failure that's that's the key you're gonna fail in a different way next time and that's good hey fail in as many ways as you can that's how you become an expert at something uh thank you so much for joining us for this episode of relative disasters we hope you've enjoyed the story and the discussion and please join us next time for another strange dangerous and interesting event from history my brother has selected our next disaster what's it gonna be greg well one of the largest disasters of all human history is the practice of selling other human beings as property. Yes. Uh, that is much, much, much too big of a, uh, of a topic to tackle in one episode. But I'm going to be uh, putting a microscope on one very specific incident. Okay. Uh, on the next episode of Relative Disasters. We're going to be talking about the 1838 Jesuit slave sale. The Jesuits sold enslaved people? Yeah. The Jesuits? Yeah. Oh, man. Yep. Yeah. It's, uh, it's uncomfortable all the way around. I just, I feel uncomfortable just listening to that intro. Okay, thank yep. you. I look forward to <laughs> being uncomfortable next week. <laughs> 
All right. That actually does sound fascinating. And I can't wait to talk to you about it.